This podcast is brought to you by EverythingVoluntary.com. Voluntary principle states that all human relations should happen by mutual consent or not at all. This podcast aims to promote respect for the voluntary principle in all walks of life and for all age groups. My name is Skylar Collins, and this is Everything Voluntary. If you'd like to kick back a small commission from every Amazon purchase you make at no extra cost to you, please use and bookmark our special link at AmazonEVC.com. That's AmazonEVC.com. Uh, before we start the episode, I want to invite you to join me as a featured guest. I'd love to chat and get to know you and give you this platform to bounce your ideas around. To schedule, go to the main website at EverythingVoluntary.com. On the right-hand side, there's a link to schedule with me immediately. Click that link, select a day and time, answer the questions, and submit. That's all it takes. Thank you so much. Well, all right, sir. It's nice to meet you. I uh, after Shepard mentioned you, I you know dug around and I realized I actually heard you. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you were recently on a podcast discussion with Stefan Kinsella and Keith Knight about <laughs> contracts and social media and whatnot. Yes, I hosted that on my Disenthrall channel. Yep. Oh, okay. Yeah, I, I caught it through Kinsella's podcast because he, as you know, his podcast is just his conversations on other people's podcast. <laughs> I did not know that he replayed it on his. That's that's cool. All right. Yeah. That, yeah, that's, that's, that's his entire podcast. He never sits there and like just riffs doing his own show. It's just syndications of his interviews on other podcasts. So it's kind of sense. Well, there you go. Nice. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and, and I, uh, I had a long talk today with um, with uh, Shepard on Anarchast. It was one of my favorite interviews, I think, this entire year. I, I love talking to that guy. Yeah, I was kind of wondering about that because I my um, I thought Anarchast was a Jeff Berwick podcast. Is that not true, or did it used to be, and it it moved to you, or it, it, it used to be until about uh, nine months ago? Okay, yeah, it is. Uh, it is. It is a me thing now. Gotcha. Gotcha. Yeah. And uh, what is the difference between that and Disenthrall? Are they different shows or? Anarchist is focused on interviewing anarchists and talking about things that anarchists are doing. Disenthrall is about um, uh, philosophy, discussion, activism, meeting out the uh, the finer, annoying, nerdy details of the non-aggression principle and, uh, and uh, libertarianism thought and things like that. So it's it's kind of like my personal nerdy playground. <laughs> I got you. Yeah, yeah. No, I I get that. I kind of combine. I guess I combine both of those things in in this podcast because I've got you know conversations and chats I do with people, and then I've got most most of my episodes are me just riffing on whatever you know, just just unloading and and whatnot. So, um, okay, yeah, I mean, great. Certainly, Disenthrall was everything for me until I picked up Anarchast. So then I had to kind of keep Anarchast focused on what it was good for, and it didn't make sense to interview people in the same way I had been on Disenthrall when I had Anarchast, so. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, cool. So, um, tell me tell me where you grew up. Uh, mainly Dallas-Fort Worth, Texas area. Okay. I lived in Dallas when I was little, 
it would have been the years 86 to 91. We lived in Carrollton. Okay. How old are you? I'm 36. I was born in 84. Okay, I'm 80. I'm 40, so uh, I was born in 80. I spent a lot of time in Carrollton. Carrollton, Farmer's Branch. I went to uh, uh, R.L. Turner High School, among others. I was yeah. supposed to go to I was supposed to go to Newman Smith, but uh, that didn't work out so well. I was I was a rowdy teen. <laughs> you were a rowdy teen. Um, <laughs> in what way were you a rowdy teen? Uh, I had I had kind of a rough childhood, so um, okay, I was uh, I was a wild child, to put it lightly. Most people are not voluntarists, so how did that how did that happen for you? Uh, you know, unlike a lot of people that you ask for origin stories from, and I love hearing origin stories. It's one of my passions. And, you know, you probably get 60% of people saying Ron Paul. You probably get, you know, 25% of people saying things like Stefan Molyneux, uh, and, you know, and, and another random smattering. Myself, it was the police. Um, I, uh, I had a life goal and, and I achieved it pretty young, but one of my life goals was to, um, become a, a business owner, entrepreneur, and as a, sort of crossing the finish line of that goal, it was to uh, own my dream car, which was a Corvette. And um, so one day in my 20s, I was like 27, I think, um, I achieved that goal and uh, I got my first Corvette. I was so proud of this car. Uh, I was in love with it. Um, but suddenly, driving a sports car, I was on every uh, police radar around. It started to be a monthly thing. One or twice, once or twice a month, I would get pulled over and it was starting to cost me a lot of money. And I wasn't driving much different than I had driven previously. It was not like I was hot riding around constantly, you know. I mean, there were certainly times, let's be honest. But, uh, you know, some of the times I probably deserved it, let's be honest. But, uh, but no, I, I was definitely getting a lot more attention and a lot of it was undeserved. And so I started sort of seeing the cracks in, uh, you know, what I was kind of raised to believe, not necessarily by my parents, but just in general, the general societal uh, belief in the just authority of the police as heroes that are there to keep you safe and to save the day. And suddenly these people were the primary source of uh, coercion and theft. Well, I didn't see it as theft at the time, but, you know, they were they were an involuntary drain on my bank account. And and a lot of them were assholes. And, you know, uh, there were certain situations where, you know, I was in no way uh, threatening anybody. I was in no way, you know, doing something that was in any any way a danger to anyone. And yet here these people were threatening me, very much threatening me um, if I didn't pull over and give them money or whatever. Right. Yeah. And I just it, it was slow. It was slow. It was a slow process over a couple years. I mean, I even went so far at one point to purchase, uh, it was like a $4,000, I forget the exact price, laser defense system for my car that would fire lasers back at the cops, uh, you know, LIDAR guns to scramble them so that they would leave me alone. And that didn't even work. And there was this one drive home from South Texas. I was driving uh, north and uh, I was I was, it was a long drive. It was one of those 11 hour drives from the southern tip of Texas all the way to Dallas. And so I, I was just cruise controlling it. I stopped off to get gas. I got back on the highway. I had, I had a loud Corvette. I track raced it. And, uh, and so I got on the highway and my car makes noise and the cop pulls on the highway behind me and tails me for 30 minutes. I see him the whole time. I had it on cruise control at the speed limit the whole time. He followed me until he decided he'd had enough. Or probably until he didn't want to drive anymore. He pulls me over and um, 
starts talking down to me like I need to be I he could take me to jail because you know all he needs is three things and and I was speeding and I drove in the left lane too long and I uh I I, I forgot whatever it was just some other random thing that he made up and um it, it, that would like tear that tore it I was like done I had to figure out what to do in my life to protect myself because these are these are micro tyrants and um so early on my first thought well if you can't beat them join them <laughs> okay <laughs> the only people that the the cops don't harass are other cops and so let me investigate and see if i can find a way to get myself a badge uh and so i found out in texas there's a thing called a uh it's like a voluntary officer so you go through the entire police training you get a full license you become a fully licensed police officer uh except you don't get paid uh you volunteer like twi- two nights a month or something like that you patrol an area just and, and you're basically there as backup if there's a national emer- if there's an emergency or something uh but you are a fully licensed cop i was like oh this is perfect i can continue with my career and my entrepreneurism and and i can also get a badge that will help protect me right and uh I don't. I didn't know if you wanted the long or short version. No, of the story. that's great. That's very interesting. Let me know. <laughs> yeah, keep going. <laughs> so I'm giving you kind of the medium version. So um, I, I I took the first steps, and the first steps were you know you fill out an application, you show up, and you do a ride along, a series of ride along with existing cops, just to sort of start learning the ropes before you actually start the education process. And I remember my first day of ride alongs. It was such mind blowing. It was an epiphany after epiphany after epiphany. I sat next to this officer who did precisely nothing all day, but F with people's lives. <laughs> and it, I, I, I just, I was there. I started to get so angry as the day went on because I kept seeing like, um, here's a mom with her kid in the back seat, uh, getting pulled out of her car because uh, some blip came up in the computer about an expired something or other. And now this woman, you know, has got crying kids in the back of the car. Now she's, you know, got a $150 uh, bill that she has to pay to the city. And uh, it was just one after another, after another like that. We didn't stop one single actual bad guy all day, but we made everyone's life worse. <laughs> it, so, it was just, it was disgusting. So so you basically drove around and just harassed peaceful people. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah, I, I would normally say effed with people. I don't know if we can cuss on your show, but yeah, like, that's fine. we just that's fine. we just fucked with people from the time we started until the time we were done. It was gross. And this is this is not anarchist voluntarist principled philosopher Patrick saying it was gross. This is like normie, mostly Republican. I probably was still watching Bill O'Reilly back in the day, kind of Patrick, right? And so I'm riding along and I am just in my moral center feeling gross. And so I quit the ride along process early, decided I, I don't care what happens to me. This is not worth it. I cannot do this to people. This this cannot be me. Were you so not allowed to, to keep your voluntary police badge and not do the ride alongs or was it required to, to maintain it? This was step one of the process of getting that badge. So I never actually oh, you were got still very building far up. into the I process. Gotcha. Like the the day one of the school to begin the process of getting your T closed license or whatever that's the Texas law enforcement certification in Texas. Uh, the the beginning step step one was to to try out some ride alongs and that was it for me. I just couldn't do it. I just couldn't do it. I I would not 
make that something that I was associated with. Because the reason why I was there is because I was tired of being fucked with yeah. <laughs> constantly. Yeah. <laughs> and so then I kind of saw just uh, it, the, the blinders came off and I'm like, okay, these are normal people. These are not heroes. These are not some special new type of human. These are normal jackoffs that are just, they have been empowered to tyrannize anyone that they want for a bunch of garbage reasons, not like actual bad guys. I'm sure some of them, they actually catch actual bad guys and do actual yeah. some good sometimes. But by and large, the day job is not that. And um, so then it became about finding out why everyone thinks they have this just authority. Where does it come from? And, you know, as a, as a, as a kind of a Republican type, you know, first I went to the founding fathers and I read and I read and I read and I studied the founding fathers. These are, these were like philosopher Kings, um, many of whom I still very much respect for the thought that they put into trying to do what they did. And then, you know, I delved even deeper than that. There was another book by judge Andrew Napolitano called it's dangerous to be right when the government's wrong. That was pivotal sort of in me waking up to realizing that the government does not obey their own documents and does not respect liberty or or my consent to be governed and and uh, finally i just sort of came to the conclusion that uh, their authority comes from nothing it's made up it's some kind of mass delusion and um it was around that time that i went looking for content along those lines i found molyneux and um old molyneux everybody we always have to make that caveat these days yeah, yeah i found old what jeez i don't even i haven't even listened to him in in years at this point but i've i've just heard and I really haven't been interested enough to start listening to again to see what all the fuss is about. But I've just heard that he's kind of off the deep end with the race realism and the Trumpism and whatnot. Is that is that what you'd say? Uh, I, I don't I, I don't like spending a lot of time. I, I made some videos kind of rebutting his his positions for Trump. And gotcha. it was about preserving the basically this. Here's the summary. And I'm trying not to be disingenuous. It was he's he was he was supporting Trump in an effort to stave off the destruction of the country long enough to create enough voluntarists uh, to have a, to achieve a free society. And so, you know, somebody like hit, this was back in Hillary Clinton time. If Hillary Clinton had gotten the presidency, the country would have gone downhill a lot faster and he wanted to buy time. And that was kind of one of the core reasons that, you know, he was pro border wall and pro Trump was just trying to slow the destruction of Western culture. Gotcha. Well, I mean, that's, that's kind of, I don't know, Murray Rothbard's and Walter Block's political activism. That's kind of what they were, right? Lesser of two evils. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I disagree with uh, I disagree with their stances on voting for sure. But yeah, um, yeah. yeah me too. So um, I uh, I did have some questions about some of these some of these things you've got your hands in that, that are kind of interesting. Um, let me ask you about this one first. What is the not governor campaign? I uh, I love. I'm a, I'm like a nerd for for activism. I try and find all the different types of activism and try them and to to see what works best, to see what's what doesn't work, to see what I'm best at. Uh and so libertarian party politics as a platform to uh speak the message of volunteerism was definitely on the list of activisms that everyone says I got to do and um and uh, so I tried it. I ran for not governor of Texas uh, what two and a half years ago now learned the uh, meat grinder that is the libertarian party uh, political dumpster fire. Why, why are you but, calling uh, it the not governor campaign? Like what's the origin uh, of that? 
Oh, it, it came from Kokesh. Um, right. Okay. Who uh, Adam Kokesh, who was doing a not presidential run. And so I thought that was the only reason to involve yourself in libertarian politics is to expose the masses that are paying attention to the perverted political podium because they have to, because there's power there that's going to be lorded over them. So they have to pay attention to the political process. Uh, I think the only reason a principal person would participate in that process is to slide behind that podium long enough to expose new people to the ideas. And uh, that's what, at the time, uh, this changed later, but at the time I thought that was uh, what Kokesh was uh, about. And uh, I wanted to attempt that at the state level, so I tried a not-governor campaign. The nickname kind of stuck, and uh, that's just how it's gone since. Okay, gotcha. Yeah, what's what's he up to these days? I haven't heard anything. <laughs> about Adam Kokesh, do you know? Uh, I uh, I had I had some problems, and so there was uh, I disassociated from that person quite a while ago. Um, gotcha. Did did not go well. So yeah, I, I haven't I haven't heard anything. I mean, I'm not active on Facebook or anything. So you know, maybe something's going on. I'm just not I'm just not privy to. But um, I, just I I just don't like to spend much time dragging other people. I, I just want to sure. you know do positive stuff on my own. Yeah, yeah. Speaking of which, um uh so this this is kind of really what got me interested because when I you know, I saw I saw some of your stuff and then I saw that you were doing this peaceful parenting university and that you're an unschooling father of three and I'm an unschooling father of three, so I'm like, I gotta talk to this guy. Virtual what is peaceful <laughs> Yeah, high five. <laughs> uh peaceful parenting university. What what is this and how and how what kind of success are you having with it? Well, I, I wanted to call it Principled Parenting University, but um, it, my target audience was the normies, not necessarily volunteer. And so the nor uh, a, a, an average normie would be more familiar with the term peaceful parenting. Uh, a lot of those groups are more crunchy and less about principles and more about um, sort of being uh, having a more permissive parenting style rather than a more principled style. So I use the name, but it's really the Principled Parenting University, and it's how to um, parent your children with the principles of self-ownership, non-aggression, um, uh, capitalism, you know, kind of free market environments. We all own ourselves. You negotiate to get what you want when there's a conflict. Um, show, show them how to find some wage slaves to <laughs> to work. <laughs> well, you know, how, to, I, I, how to trick their friends into being their wage slaves. Jesus, no. Um <laughs> <laughs> I uh, I gave a talk at, on the main stage at Anarchapoco uh, 2020, uh, where I talked about um, you know some of the fundamentals of it. One of the things I met, I pointed out was that you know everybody says communism, you know it only works at the really small level, like in the home, in, in your family. That's the that's as big as you can really get communism and have it still function. I was there making the point that communism does not even really function at that level. It creates all sorts of problems. Described one. One example is sharing. You know, most parents talk about their kids needing to share between their siblings or share with other children, and they'll they'll even some like punish them or admonish them if they refuse to share, or they'll teach sharing as like it's something you need to do. And uh, I kind of made the point, just kind of in a microcosm of the principled parenting approach, that everything in my house has a specific owner. Nothing is communally owned. Nothing belongs to the family. You know, I own the house and you know, I own the TV and my son owns his tablet and his tablet computer and my daughter, you know, owns her dolls and my son owns his train tracks and, you know, things like that. And so what that ended up doing 
was giving everyone the right to say no when somebody else wanted to touch their stuff. And that security in one's property made them feel comfortable letting other people use their stuff. So like sharing sort of fell out of self-ownership as opposed to sharing being the thing ordered to happen. It was yeah. like, look, if you make if you make them feel secure in their property and and make sure that they're aware that at any time they want, they can ask for their property back and get it back because it's theirs. Then, you know, if somebody comes up and says, hey, can I use this? You're not. They're like, yeah, sure. I'll get it back when I want it. And there's no pressure and sharing just happens on its own. We've never once had to deal with like sharing, for example. So that's just that's just one tiny sort of example. No, no, that's 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 great. It's uh, yeah, I think we're. We're pretty much the same way here. I've, I've definitely, you know, and kids kind of grow out of this, but when they're little, it's, you know, they, they grasp onto their toys and their stuff and they're afraid of losing it. You know, the idea of sharing it with somebody to them is like, it's not going to be mine anymore. It's going to be theirs. And I don't, I don't want it to be theirs. I want it to, to keep being mine. And so, yeah, we never, we would never force our kids to share and, and, when we're at friends or family's house and they want to use somebody else. And of course their parents aren't doing what we're doing. So they're like trying to tell their kid, you know, you have to share. And I, um, I'm always, you kind of want to intervene, you know, but you kind of also don't want to piss them off because you know, they're family and you have to see them all the time. <laughs> so it's like, you know, you're just saying things like, Oh, it's okay. You know, we're, we're going to wait, we're going to, we're going to wait for it. Cause it's, it's theirs and it's important to them, that kind of stuff. But yeah. And then, um, I was just, as you were talking about um, sharing that comes out of ownership, it's like, and you're probably the same way, but this is my house. It's my property. And knowing that it's mine, it's like, I know that I can share this with people I care about. And I'm sharing it with you because I care about you. And I want you to enjoy this thing also. Um, yeah. I may put some yeah, conditions I... on its use if I need you to do stuff for me, but <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I also think that I have, you know, an obligation, a positive obligation to my kids to provide them the things that they need to grow up uh, healthy and well-educated uh, and well-rounded and you know, sort of not insane. <laughs> and so, you know, part of that is putting a roof over their head to keep them protected. Um, so it, it's still my property, but, you know, I'm using my property to fulfill an obligation that I accepted when you know we decided to conceive them. So, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, and that's that's something that's not talked a lot about because I think most most people who are arguing about libertarianism on the Internet are probably basement dwellers and aren't married and <laughs> don't have kids. But, yeah, just just that idea. And I know Tom Woods has talked about it, and I think Stefan Kinsella has talked about it. But the idea of the positive obligation when it comes to another person that you created and are naturally dependent, right? They can't fend for themselves yet you created that dependency. If you create a dependency for somebody, then there's got to be either an obligation, an obligation for you not to allow them to die. If you don't want that obligation anymore, then you've got to transfer it to somebody, at least until they can assume it themselves. And maybe that's not the best way to talk about it. Maybe it can be refined a bit, but, but yeah, I'm, I'm with you there. Yeah. And I, you know, I debated Walter Block on this. Um, the, the whole the whole positive negative obligation thing, a lot of libertarians will say, you know, there are no positive moral obligations. Well, yeah, there are when you accept them, when you take positive action to sign a contract or to, you know, take an action that you own the effects of, like firing a gun, you own the effects of that action when you, uh, you know, uh, 
have sex and create a kid, you own the effects of that action. And part of that is, you know, creating a life in a state of peril in, in, in kind of the same way as if you took, you know, you took a person and threw them in a lake that couldn't swim. Well, you've created a situation where uh, a life is in peril. You are responsible for the outcome of that situation. You have a positive obligation to you know, handle that situation the, to the best extent possible for the person you put in peril, so to speak. So that's kind of, that's kind of where I see the positive obligation to our children come from. It's like you created, you literally created the situation. You own it. Yeah. You met, you mentioned um, debating with Walter Block. I remember a debate he had with Stefan Molyneux about spanking. And I think I kind of did a, a response to it. My own riff on a podcast back at the time, this was years ago. And I, I, I believe that Walter Block's whole argument for why you're justified in spanking your kids is that spanking is a protective use of force. And the example they were talking about, he was trying to make this analogy of allowing your kid to put his genitals on a urinal and how you you would you wouldn't let him do that because of the the danger that that represents disease and whatnot. And so you would you would forcefully keep him away from doing that and therefore forcefully spanking your kid in order to keep him out of danger is a protective use of force and is therefore no different than doing that or pulling your kid out of the road if a car zooming by stuff like that and i just remember smashing my head <laughs> i was i think i was driving i was smashing my head against the window like oh my god this is come on walter block you're better than this this is this is horrible <laughs> well i i got into it with him on abortion and we can go there if you want but um yeah i, I think the obvious problem with the uh you know nuts on the urinal thing is that it's the same thing with the kid running into the street if your kid is running into the street you have already failed your job is to create, you know, to protect your kid. And if they're running in the street, you have already failed at your job. You do not get to hit them for your failure as a parent to keep them safe. That's that's a total inversion of the responsibility and culpability in the situation. If anything, you should be hit for not doing your job. Like your job is to before the terrible bad things are happening to to handle the situation such that those things don't happen. And I guess nuts don't end up on urinals. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. It was, it was, it was a strange analogy he was making and, and Stefan Molyneux surprisingly was not coming at, at it the way I hope that he did um, really attacking the idea that if it's true that the only way to protect your kid, you know, whatever, for whatever reason you're spanking him for is to spank him maybe, but it's like, you don't, it's not necessary. Okay. So maybe, maybe you don't see it as an ethical question. That's fine. But is it ever necessary? Right. Is there ever a situation where spanking is the only way to teach your kid not to do something that's going to hurt himself? And it's just simply not true. So it's totally unnecessary. Um, and it just seemed like one of those situations where he, he was probably a spanker for his kids. And it just, it just, and I see this like in my own father and, other oh, yeah. people of the older generation. It's just they don't they don't want to confront that, you know, that th those mistakes that they made. So they Oh they, uh, yeah. imagine the guilt. Right. I mean, the name for it is sunk cost bias. Like you've already you've invested your moral framework in an action, and then to go back and then uh, um uh re-adjudicate that action as immoral and basically prove oneself evil in that way. That is a really difficult thing for humans to do. I, there's no clearer example of that than the abortion debate. For for somebody that's had an abortion to reconfigure their moral stance on the topic, wow, 
there, I mean, there's a huge uh, bias in one's mind against doing that of reconfiguration or reevaluation. Cause I mean, to, to do that, you're, you would have to come to terms with, you know, yourself being a murderer on, on some level. So I, I, let me know what you think of this. Um, so I keep bringing, I, for, for the record, I brought up abortion twice. So if we're going there, it's my fault. I apologize. No, no, it's fine. I just, what I wanted to, <laughs> <laughs> what I wanted to say is that I have found value in blocks evictionism theory as a practical, um, let's bring the two sides together and then move forward in developing technology that will allow us to save earlier and earlier childbirth so that parents or mothers no longer have an excuse to abort their babies. They can't say, well, I had to abort it because there's no way it would survive out of the womb when we've developed the technology to do that. So it's kind of a kind of a an in-between and kind of a stopgap. But I don't know what do you what do you think about it as far as that? I mean, I I agree with what you said and your description of it, and I debated him on it on my disenthrall channel uh, specifically, and I actually convinced him at the end of the show on a nuanced position on it that he did not previously hold, and that is that um, evictionism outside of rape would still be sort of immoral for the person to do, but rape is still a situation that you know the parents did not consent to. Therefore, they don't own the effects of those actions. Uh, therefore, um, you know, evictionism in the case of rape, the best of a, you know, a terrible option, I suppose, unless one wanted to just sort of be a hero and have have the baby anyway, which is just a that's a terrible thing to think about dealing with. But um, uh, yeah, and, and I and the the analogy I used was the one I just brought up to you, which is, um, you know, you're it is impossible <laughs> almost by definition to come up with a good analogy for pregnancy and birth because it's a pretty unique scenario but the best one that we came up with in my discussion with block was the you know, knocking somebody someone into a lake that couldn't swim like you have created a situation in which uh, an innocent life is in peril you must own that situation you must own the effects of your actions and uh, you know a, a rape analogy somebody sort of forcing that situation on you against your consent but Outside of that, I mean, you have to you have to own the effects of your actions. That's a pretty libertarian um, bedrock position. Yeah, would would it be? And I guess there really wouldn't be a difference if it was. Well, I mean, if it's if it's an intentional shove into a lake, then obviously that's attempted murder. But if it's kind of an accidental, like you, you accidentally bump somebody, I mean, accidents don't relieve you of um, restitution and having to 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 get in there and and prevent further harm, right? Exactly. If you accidentally break a window, you still owe the person for a window. You still own the effects of accidental actions. Yeah, I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what it came down to in my discussion. And, and um, you know, we, we got his agreement. And then my producer, I, I think, visited Louisiana sometime after that and sort of re-went through it with it. I don't think he's written a new book on it with that new conclusion in it. But, you know, <laughs> we can hope. <laughs> yeah, well, he's a, he's a pretty busy guy, I think. So. <laughs> yeah, he is. Um. Okay, so all right, here's the next question. What you started having kids, um how did you discover unschooling? Um I discovered volunteerism 6 months before my son was born. And uh it was a freak out moment where I realized that the way I was parented and the way I had parented my first kid who is now 20 um was not only wrong and ineffective and harmful, but it was just immoral. You know, I, I parented my first, my, my oldest daughter uh, very traditionally for the South. So 
spankings, punishments, control, uh, demands, the whole nine yards of terrible parenting techniques. Um, and so I had a very short time when, when my son was about to be born to retool and I had an empty toolbox and it was terrifying. And I was scrambling and reading and studying and trying to find out how to do it without coercion. What year was and, this? Uh, he's six now. So six years ago. Okay. No, it was longer than that. Seven, seven and a half, something like that. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so I, I quickly sort of had to figure out how to do this stuff and I had to put together tools for my toolbox and it's a very difficult, there's not a lot of, there's peaceful parenting knowledge out there, peaceful parenting books, um, but no voluntarist principled applied parenting out there that I found. And there's little podcasts you can find crumbs here and there, but nothing in one place. And that was one of the reasons why, you know, um, nine months ago, we did the Peaceful Parenting University because I just wanted to start putting out content that that didn't just philosophize. Because like Molyneux, he's got a lot of philosophy of parenting content from old school Molyneux where he talks about some of this stuff, but he talks about it from the cerebral point of view, not from the, here's what you actually do on a day-to-day basis to implement these principles. And so uh, every single video I put, Peaceful Parenting University, practical, this just this is how you do it type stuff. Yeah, so that that was the toolbox I wanted to help people create for them. Did I answer your question or just ramble? ramble well, yeah, no, no. You talked about the peaceful parenting, and then what? How did you discover things like unschooling? Like what? What got you? Uh, when did you decide I don't want my kids going to government schools and I need to do something oh. else? I was homeschooled for one year when I was a child, so I was very aware of homeschooling because I did it. Uh, I had it, you know, I, I had participated in it, um, and so that was the default for for what my kids were going to do was some kind of homeschooling thing, which, you know, I could maintain control of from a content standpoint and from an indoctrination standpoint. So that wasn't part of the pressure that I felt. And then at some point, I realized that even though I was going through public school as a, as a kid and as a teenager, I would come home from school. And after I was done doing what they thought was important for me, I would end up studying the things that I was really passionate and loved doing. And so I would stay up till four in the morning learning coding and, you know, doing deep dives into information technology type learning because that was where my passion was. And then I would, you know, get three hours of sleep and wake up and zombie through school, through normie school all day, which was a waste of time in retrospect and come home and actually do my education on things that I was passionate about in the middle of the night when I should have been sleeping. And so at some point when I heard about unschooling, I realized that I had sort of unschooled myself. Yeah. And so it wasn't, it didn't take much to sort of convince me uh, of, of unschooling for my children, because in my life, it was the formal schooling that was a complete waste of my time and actually probably slowed me down. And it was the self teaching of things that were important to me that, that pays my bills to this day. So um, yeah, I, okay. I kind of, I guess the answer to your question is unschooling was easy once I heard about it because I, I understood it by default because that's what I did for myself. That's what you did for yourself. Yeah, I I um I didn't get past my sophomore year of high school um before I I took what's called the GED. I don't know if that exists in many states, but GED is like a high school equivalency exam. Yeah. It's a way to like cut out of high school early. So by what would be normally most people's junior year in high school, I had my first coding job because that was what I was passionate about. And so because I, I didn't, I, like I said, there was no junior or senior year of high school. There was not a drop of college in my life. Um, I started coding 
at a from a professional level when I was like my first coding job was 16. And um, and so I guess when everybody else was graduating with their master's in computer science, ready to learn how to have a job as a programmer, I had like, you know, seven years of experience on my resume actually coding and yeah, would definitely recommend. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, that's, that's, that's really cool. Um, I don't know if this is too personal to ask, but I'm just curious what, cause you mentioned you have an older son. What, what does he think about how you're raising your current, <laughs> your current kids that, uh, now that he's not dependent on you anymore, but these guys, these other guys are. That's a, that's a great question. Um, my oldest daughter, uh, daughter, I, I, I think I'm, I'm rare. I mean, I'm not unique, but I'm rare in that I've done it both ways. I've raised a set of kids traditionally forcefully, and I've now raised a set of kids uh, peacefully and principled. So I can, from personal experience, say that doesn't work very well, and this works really well. And and I can compare and contrast from personal experience. But to answer your question, um, once I realized what I did with my daughter um, was deeply evil, uh, that was one of those moments that I was talking about when we're talking about anything where you have to reevaluate something that you did in, in your past and you have a strong negative bias towards reevaluating things that you've done and calling yourself evil. That's difficult. And so I took that, obli- I mean, I took that obligation. I took that transgression seriously. You know, I, I had sit downs with my daughter where I you know, talked about the things that I had sort of discovered were wrong and why they were wrong and why I shouldn't have done them and what I should have done. And I offered, you know, to pay, uh, to pay, you know, free of charge, hands off if she wanted. I didn't have to be involved in the process because, you know, she's an adult now, but I offered to provide her therapy sessions with somebody that she wanted to talk to about it. Like I, I just, I, I tried to think like if I was a third party dispute resolution company and one of my clients was my daughter and the other one of my clients was me and, and, you know, she was coming for restitution for what I had done. Like what kinds of things would need to be provided? And so I offered that stuff and it's a long process and the relationship is probably never going to be, you know, as good as it would have been. But the biggest, the biggest apology that you can make is not with words. It's with a change in behavior. And so I'm going to try not to tear up, but um, the biggest way I apologize to her is by parenting my kids right now. Because she knows not, it wasn't just words. It wasn't me just, you know, after doing all those things to her, oh, honey, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have done that stuff. My bad. No, it's I literally re architected how I parent in this life and I'm applying it every day. And, you know, we've never done the things to my kids that I apologize to her for doing to her. And, and there is no more powerful an apology than that. So, yeah, that's, uh, that's beautiful, man. I'm, I'm, I'm so happy to hear. I'm not obviously what I'm happy to hear about is the change of heart and the change of practice. And I spank my my oldest son. He's 15 now, but he was pretty much from, you know, when he started potty training until about five years old. I would I would, you know, scientifically spank him in timeouts. And when I would lose my cool and be like rage mode screaming at him, I wouldn't I wouldn't spank him. So when I spanked him, it was like you know, scientific <laughs> to him, you know, he's just, you know, freaked out. Right. Um, but then, you know, then for me, it was, I discovered, um, I had that cognitive dissonance where it was like, I'm calling myself a voluntarist. I believe in, in self-ownership and non-aggression, but here I am becoming this monster. And a friend of mine 
introduced me to this book called Unconditional Parenting by Alfie Cohn. And he's not a voluntarist. He's, he's, from what I can tell, he's just a typical liberal Democrat. But he's, this was a fantastic book and it totally, totally destroyed the idea that I should be punishing my kids for any reason, as well as rewarding them. And are you familiar with Alfie Cohn at all? I am familiar. Yes. Okay. I have yeah. not he, read the he entire writes, book. I have, I've read part of the one that you were talking about. Yeah. That's, that's his parenting book. He's got a lot of books against like the way schools do things with like grades and, and whatnot that are pretty good. He doesn't, I don't think he has anything on like telling parents to homeschool and stuff. He doesn't go, he doesn't step, you know, into, into that sandbox, but he's a big critic of schooling anyway. So that's what totally, you know, you know, blew apart what I was doing, emptied my toolbox, like you said. And now it's like, I got to, I got to get some tools in here. So then I, you got to discover, I don't know if you've seen this one. This is a great one. It's called Playful Parenting by Lawrence Cohen. And he's not, you know, a libertarian or anything like that. He's just, you know, just another guy. That's, that's full of practical um, advice on this. And then there's, you know, there's a few others that I discovered. And yeah, you just start, you just start practicing it and you start figuring it out as you go along and you you, you get stuck sometimes. But you have conversations with the spouse and you talk about why somebody might be like, like the most recent stuff for us is my six-year-old, my youngest. She's, she's having these moments where she gets really angry and when something doesn't go her way or something doesn't happen the way she wants it to, she'll get angry and she'll, she'll say, I hate you, you know, and stuff like that. And something, you know, that I've, I practice and I've, my wife's working on and I've, I've kind of taught her is to just, number one, it's never personal. So even though it's happening and all your, you know, all your adult family members, maybe they're listening to this, it might be embarrassing, but don't let that cause you to do something you'll regret, right? Don't take it personal and just, you know, maybe, I don't know. It's like one of those things where it's like, what do we do? So we talk about stuff. Um, but yeah, you've got to, you've got to discover new tools to fill that. And it, it takes experience. So that's interesting that you've got a lot more experience doing it the other way. And my experience was all, you know, those few years, f first five years, I guess, as well as my own childhood of how to do it wrong. <laughs> yeah. Um, and it's a trial by fire. Um, but, yeah. and it's a, it, if you're, if you don't have time to plan ahead and learn this stuff before you, you make a human, then you're in a, you're in one of those, they throw you in the river and you got to learn how to swim or die kind of situations. As long as you're committed to the principle and you, no matter what happens, you know, will not sort of violate the principles of non-aggression. Uh, you find ways it, it, it eventually works out and you learn. Uh, and one of the most enlightening things, no, one of the things that gave me, um, the connection of empathy with my kids when they are in those freak out, screamy, angry, ragey, crying, uncontrolled emotions moments is when I learned that the part of the brain that regulates emotion and uh, provides a release valve to that short circuit literally has not developed yet until they start hitting like the teenage years and doesn't really even finish developing until like for guys that think it finishes at 24 years old. It's the, like the frontal lobe in men does not finish developing until the mid 20s. Uh, and in small children, it just is non-functional. And so their brains can very easily get caught in this self grow, this uh, feedback loop of emotions that just grows and grows and grows. And they don't have the physical capacity to stop it. They are unable to physically control that and keep that from happening. And what I learned is that 
you train your kids' brains to learn how to do that by using your brain to teach them how to calm. And so what I thought, this was another one I talked about on the Narcopoco stage was, uh, you know, you get down on their level, you stay calm, you open your arm, forget about everything that was going on in your head and what you're frustrated about and what you're angry about. And man, I wish they'd be quiet or man, I just wish they'd do what I wanted, what I told them to do, or, you know, I told them to stop and they're not, you, you uninstall all that from your brain for just a little while. You get down on their level, you just open your arm and you take it all in. You become an input and you let them just dump and tell me about it. Man, you look really angry. You mirror their emotions back to them verbally. Wow, you look so angry right now. Can you tell me about that? Oh man, you look so sad. Oh, why are you sad? What's making you sad? And just do nothing but ask questions, do nothing but identify with them, reflect back to them what you see them feeling, hold them, hug them, sit with them, and they just dump all of that into you and through in doing so you are you are using your frontal cortex to interrupt that emotional feedback loop and to train their brain on how to do it themselves so it's little stuff like this that is it, it can just change everything with parenting and they don't teach you this <laughs> they just it's not really taught anywhere right no no the well tell me have you are you familiar with uh, thomas gordon parent effectiveness training because what you were no, just talking about with mirroring back, that sounds like active listening, which is which is mm-hmm. something he talks about in that book. And that, that book's just full of these practical tools to help with stuff like that. I have not read that one. Yeah. Yeah, it's a parent I'll I'll link to it, but it's parent effectiveness training by Thomas Gordon. It's it's absolutely brilliant. Um yeah, and it, it it's just the worst part about it is you read this stuff, you're like, oh my god, this is great. And then when it happens, your own PTSD or something is getting triggered because of the high emotions. And then all of that goes out the window and you're just like, oh, my God, flight or flight, you know, fight or flight. What am I supposed to do? So it's that's uh, when it's that's fun. when your parents come out in you. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Well, yeah, important stuff to know. If you're going to make humans, you need to learn this stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I. I. I'm glad I didn't get as far as long as you did in in treating another person that way and I don't I don't know what he's going to have to deal with. We've had conversations about it. Um, you know, but still I mean five there were still a lot of interesting developments happening at that point and when you're putting a kid through that kind of trauma, that will have long-term effects. So, you know, I'll be here for him. I'll do what I can to help him guide him to to whatever he needs whether it's therapy or psychedelics or who knows what but um yeah i'm i'm just i'm proud of myself and i'm proud of you too and anybody else who discovers that and says no more let's do it different and moves forward cuz that's 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 the only way it's going to work it's the only way that we're going to stop creating broken people that look for strong leaders to hmm. slay their enemies for them. You know what I mean? It's the only way. Yes. Yes. Uh, sounds like you're taking the words right out of my previous podcast. Yes. Oh. If you raise kids as a strong authority figure, then you, we all accept the reality we're presented with when we enter this existence. It's just what we do. You know, we don't question gravity until we are given a reason to later. And so if we raise kids with authority, authority from an author- authoritarian point of view, with force, do as I say, because I said so, 
then when they hit adulthood, they are going to naturally expect there to still be some authority over them doing that for their life. And they will be uncomfortable if that doesn't exist. And so you're creating humans that expect government. And so this is why I say parenting is the most effective form of activism. Because when we raise kids without that central authority, when they hit adulthood and find this central coercive authority that they didn't ask for or consent to, that will be out of place. That will be the weird thing that needs to be gotten rid of instead of the status quo. Um, And so it's the long game as far as activism, you know, things like the Libertarian Party, street activism, protests are a waste of time. But, you know, all the a lot of the stuff that people do as activists, that's like the short game. I'm sorry, my kids are crying in the background. Um, That's the short game activism. But the long game, the really effective activism is just raising humans better. So that's why I'm so passionate about it. Yeah. Well, why don't we end on that? Um, Sounds like you got to run and we've been here almost an hour. So this was great, man. I'm I'm happy to meet you. And I'll uh, um, I was trying to subscribe to your podcast just through my my app. Um, it, It wasn't pulling anything up on the search. Are you okay. like in the Apple Podcast directory or anything? Uh, no, we're on we're on SoundCloud. We uh, we had some an, initial issues getting blocked on the Apple Podcast stuff, so we've just been doing the audio stuff to SoundCloud. Okay, uh, I can get a feed. I can get a public feed from there. Um, I think you can. Yeah, yeah. No, I, I know how to do that. I Shepherd. I just actually just because Shepherd his podcast, the only podcast that was showing up, his new radio show was the the one that the the station's releasing and it's got all the commercials and everything. So I asked him, I'm like, why don't you cut this up into segments and release it in the podcast that way? And he said he was doing that on SoundCloud. And I said, yeah, that's when I'm searching for your podcast, that's not what's coming up. So he sent me, he sent me a feed for that. So um, you just got to use like the user ID and you stick it in the feed. So no problem. Yep. I'll do that. And I'll, I'll link to your stuff and everything. And all right, man, Thank this you. was great. I I enjoyed it as well. Thank you. All right, thanks. Have a good night. You too. Bye. Bye. Please send your comments and questions to everythingvoluntary at gmail.com. Please consider supporting this podcast and everythingvoluntary.com by setting up an automatic monthly donation at patreon.com forward slash EBC. One-time donations are also accepted at paypal.me forward slash everything voluntary. Will you do us a big favor? Will you rate and review this podcast wherever you're listening from? That really helps. And one more thing, please share the podcast with your friends. We really appreciate it.